the only issue I might have is we're, we're in. Um, hi, how are you doing? I'm really good. How are you doing? Yeah, excellent. This is um, there's something different about this this recording, and one is where you are, and two is where where I am. So I've had to move into my bedroom because I live on a building site and they're drilling outside. And you are. I am on the school run today, so I'm, I've come early. I'm parked outside my son and daughter's school, or two of them. I've got four in total, but two of them. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm, we're doing this and then I'm taking them home. Awesome. So that, I mean, it, it feels like um, one of those programmes with, the, I'm thinking James Corden does stuff in cars um, <laughs> and um, Peter Kay did stuff in cars, didn't he? <laughs> he did. Yeah, I spend a lot of time in my in a in a car. I have um, I have I was married before, and I have two kids from that marriage, and I'm married second time, and I have two kids. So, in order to try and be present, I'm spending a lot of time in the car. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but no, it's it's totally worth it. And um, yeah, anyway, so yeah, I I do a lot of driving, listen to audio books and um, podcasts. So this is a real treat for me to be on one. Excellent. Excellent. Well, just a brief sort of backstory is that I, like you, I'm assuming sort of into the do lectures and love all that kind of work. And I, I just randomly sort of pick one. So this is very fortuitous. And, and it was you with, without beard. Uh, people can't see that because it'll only be the audio. Um, <laughs> and and I, I was just totally compelled by, by what you were saying. I, I loved it. Um, and it was that mix of, of, of humor but but real importance there were some messages that really sort of resonated um but that was back in 2015 wasn't it yeah i mean it's um i can't believe it's was it really 2015 six years ago i think, oh I think it was i think so yeah yeah no i'm sure you're right uh yeah i mean the do is insane i mean i had met so many people that have become really important in my life through that through their network um and i'd always been a fan of it be David was one of the reasons why I started a business because I was like I'm not the kind of person that starts a business and then I obviously thought of him and thought well hang on Howie's was like my favorite brand as a skateboarder and I sort of thought well if David and Claire can do that kind of business then maybe I can do a business um but of course the do isn't about business it's about philosophy it's about living well it's about humility and ambition and it's, it's all kinds of nice things which are often paradoxical but they seem to have they seem to straddle that they seem to straddle paradoxes really well um and i'm lucky to have been a few times now so yeah that was but it was a huge ambition realized to be asked to do a do lecture it was pretty much it was kind of like the knighthood from within my um in my world and in terms of the things that i cared about and respected it was sort of like an a really incredible accolade um and yeah they're this i don't know they don't know how they've done what they've done but they're um they seem to remove people's cynicism and they just seem to have this way of being and of course it's not just them it's it's the vibe and the atmosphere that they create and the environment um but yeah, I feel very lucky. It's one of the, it's the sort of a handful of things I've done in the last sort of 10, 15 years that have really shifted my life trajectory. And that's definitely one of them. Wow. So, you, you know, giving the talk, but also being there with this group of people. Yeah, because what's, what's incredible about it is that obviously you go as a speaker. I've been as a speaker and I've been as an attendee. 
And at some point, I haven't asked him yet, but at some point I want to be a volunteer because I want to experience it in the whole thing because I think it's very different for each. So obviously when you're a speaker, you get that little bit of, you know, magic. Like you, it's good for your ego, basically. You get, you get to camp in a slightly separate place. You sort of feel a little bit like a celebrity, but in a nice way especially if you get to do your talk relatively early because it's a brilliant icebreaker because everyone will come up to you and talk to you. But what's actually the most interesting about it is that the people that go are as interesting as the speakers. So you'll find yourself having dinner next to somebody, having a conversation that totally blows your mind. And it's, I think it's that kind of place where there is a sense of, you know, an ego boost to being speaker. But as you go, when you go as an attendee, you don't, there's no VIP area. You don't feel like, um, you're being separated at all. Um, so no, it's a very it's a very odd atmosphere, and it's very small. I think that's part of the part of the reason why it's so successful. Um, but have you been, or have you you? No. So I was I was fairly recently introduced. I was having right. um, lunch with with a friend, and he'd been doing some stuff, and he'd had David on his podcast. Right. Um, and so we were chatting about things and, and he said, oh, you, you should check out the do lectures and, and, and was quoting, you know, some of the, the phrases and, and things from from David and, and from that work. And I was like, oh, yeah, I love, you know, I love all this. Yeah. Stuff. Um, and um, and I went off and, and, you know, signed up to the newsletter and I've been reading the Chicken Shed Chronicles and yeah, okay. the, the videos and all that stuff. And and thinking yeah and and they can't really capture something as you said you know a lot of these these concepts that are kind of out there but they just there's just a way and I, I haven't got a way to describe it but it just feels good actually and that probably ties into to your talk and what we'll get into in a second um and and then um some of the online courses came up and i i right. signed up to and i've been doing that and and getting an immense amount out of it um beyond the the lectures um even though it's online and so it's kind of grown from there so it's been four or five months i suppose something something like right. that even that long it's a kind of it's a sort of sort of shortcut my friend um john were two of them they run qi and they used to run a bookshop and their bookshop was amazing because it had totally different it didn't have sections in the way you would normally have in a bookshop and one of their sections was called save 10 years mm. and it was basically books from a complete range of subjects that if you read them it would just save you 10 years of research <laughs> and work and I think the do is a bit like that it's like a massive shortcut in the best possible sense of the word because they've done so much it's sort of like a due diligence process or something I mean of course you know I'm as middle class as they come and I'm a white man so and I know that they're totally conscious of that so it's a sort of um it's filtered by the people that are interested in it. And I look at you, your face, and you, you know, we are very, we look very similar. Mm. I'm sure we have similar backgrounds and similar tastes. So um, not, notwithstanding the fact that it's sort of filtered for, for a certain kind of audience, which I know they're interested, they want to change and are changing. But I think there is that sense of due diligence where you're like, ah, for somebody on, like me following my trajectory, this is just saving me a ton of time and they're getting me some really good stuff really quickly and they're delivering it in a way that's that really lands and resonates um 
which reminds me, I'm invoice uh, David and Claire for this amazing advert I'm doing on their behalf. But they deserve it. Yeah. The, the one criticism that do gets is that it costs a lot to go. I don't know what it is this year, but when I went, it was like 1,500 quid a ticket. And it is expensive until you leave. Mm. When you leave, you're like, I can't fucking believe that only cost me 1,500 quid. Yeah. But again, only a certain type of person can even contemplate spending 1,500 quid for a weekend doing something. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, all of those things, um, you know, not to ignore those things, but the kind of extraordinary power of it is, is absolutely immense. And you'll, you'll, you'll just keep going now. Mm. I, can, I can see it in your eyes. You're going yeah, you to become a do person. Yeah, you can feel it. You can feel it. Now, that, that kind of brings me on because I, I want to talk about your, your talk and, and I'll share your talk in the because other people need to listen to it to, to kind of get more insight. And, and it was it was full of, you know, I was laughing a lot during it. And I guess that was that was part of the purpose. And, you, you know, then you relax and you listen more. But it's really this this feeling. And I've written down the pronunciation here to, and I'll probably <laughs> get it wrong. So it's this sort of spieljoig. Spielzeug. That's it. Spielzeug. Yeah, there you go. Are you're, now, would you describe yourself as a Spielzeuger? <laughs> I think what <laughs> I think it's um, it's it's a sort of it's a well, what is it? It's an ambition. It's a kind of it's the thing I'm looking for in everything. It's the kind of indescribable, immeasurable wonder that certain experiences people objects um have that you just you just kind of can't it's almost like you can't it's not even a choice you're just sort of pulled towards something um and the example i give in the talk um and in a, a book which i wrote a little bit about it was is buying a house and I, is it worth me just recapping it? I mean, this is yeah, in yeah, the no, floor, no, do, but, do, yeah. But I think it's the it's the it's the one example of it which everybody seems to intuitively understand. Um, and it's my friend John Lloyd, the TV producer. He told me a story about a blind man buying a house, which he'd heard from an estate agent. Um, and the agent talk, was explaining how the this blind man was choosing a house and a flat to live with. And like all of us, he had like a list of criteria of things that he was looking for that the house had to have. A certain number of bedrooms, right kind of layout, that kind of thing, whether it needed a garage. And we all have that list. But what the agent was finding was that, that he was taking this guy to houses and flats. But all the guy would do was walk in the front door and stand there for about 10 seconds and then just say no and then leave. And the agent was like, by the time they got to like 16th and 17th place, they were just like started to worry that they were on candid camera and someone was, because I mean, you know, without meaning to be rude, this guy was blind. Like what, what was going on? And eventually on the last one, I think it was the 18th from memory, the blind man walked in the, in the door, stood there for 10 seconds and said, yes, this is the one. And like the agent was like tearing his hair out going, what the, this is fucking insane. Like, how can you possibly do that? But then he started to think about it and he started to realize that actually the blind man was doing exactly the same thing that any one of us does when we're looking to buy or rent a house. We may have a list of all the things that we're looking for. What we really want is that indescribable feeling when you walk through the front door and you just know you're going to live somewhere. So he realized that this blind guy was just using the same sense that we all use. Um, it's just more pronounced because he happens to be blind. Yeah. And that's what Spielzeug is. It's the, it's, 
when something speaks to you for reasons that you simply can't explain, and it can be relationships, it can be in friendships, it can be in, you know, I'm wearing Vans trainers, like for me, not every year, but sometimes they'll pull out, they'll bring out a pair that is just, just speaks to me. And I spoke to my friend, Greg Rowland, who is a semiotician, and he does semiotic analysis for brands. And I sort of see he's one of the cleverest people I know. So I rang him up and said, what do you think of this? He said, well, that's really interesting because it's my job to put that feeling into things that don't have it through marketing and advertising. And I started to realize, oh, my God. So not only is this like a, a something that we all respond to, people are using the same language, the same idea, the same feeling to sell us things. And I think that's super interesting because obviously we live in a world where everything that has most meaning in, our, in life is immeasurable. You can't plot love on a graph or courage or authenticity or kindness and yet because the power structures that govern us will only deal in measurable things and they will only do things if you can measure them because if you can't measure it to prove you've done it what's the point you start to see this kind of weird world we're living in where everything we value is on one is happening in one dimension and all the structures that govern us are constructed on the basis of another dimension and they're not meeting and it's gradually driving us crazy yeah. um and not wanting to give them any more free publicity, but one of the things that do lectures does is it pulls those two things together. And suddenly you feel like you're in the same place and you're kind of unified. Um, and this is a very modern thing that humans are living through. Like, I don't believe that it's human nature to be stuck in that problem where you want to live instinctively one way, but the structures you're living within make it impossible. And I think COVID has blown that apart to some degree with the whole working from home thing. If you're lucky enough to be in a role where you can work from home, it's suddenly blown. It suddenly made reveal that you can live, you can do that in the same dimension. You can live and work in the same dimension. You don't have to be cut yourself in half. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, so am I a Spielzogi person? It's become the thing I look for. Um, like I don't barely, very rarely buy anything, but when I do buy something, it's completely extraordinary. Mm. Um, mm. But most of the time, of course, with Spielzeug, the best examples of it are things that where money isn't involved. Yeah. So it's a quality of feel. It's a, it's a phenomenology, isn't it? What does that mean? I don't know what that means. It's, it's a phenomena. It's, it's, it, there's a quality of what it feels like. You, you yeah. know when you're feeling it. Yeah. Is there, are there, and I know that you're into words massively, you're a wordsmith, and, and I wrote your quote, you know, unless you have a word to capture it, then you can't think about it. And, and that's the whole kind of conundrum here, I guess, isn't it? That, that is the word. That is the word. Yeah. But, yeah. but I'd never heard it before, and I'd imagine if I went out and asked 100 people where <laughs> I live, I'd be very surprised if anyone knew it. Um, so what, how else do we describe it? Are there any other ways, or is it unique to that word? um i think like what's what's interesting about the, the word side of it is like i'm a verbal thinker so that's how i think a lot of people think in images so they'll be listening to this go i don't think in words i think in images um and mo but most people are a combination of the two i am very much uh, verbal like i definitely think in words what's interesting about the word is that the concept is already in your mind the word is like the torchlight that shines on on the concept for you to think it Mm. so i think spielzeug as a concept everybody understands it i think you understand it intuitively for a human being i mean i have no evidence for this 
but my feeling is that in that I'm obsessed with hunter gatherers at the moment. I'm writing a novel which has got a lot of, and I've done a ton of research about hunter gatherers. And for two hundred thousand years, Homo sapiens lived in a certain way. We were nomadic. Um, we had a much better quality of life than people think. Actually, it's been portrayed as this kind of nasty, brutish, and short. And there are undoubtedly time periods where that was the case. But certainly in this country, in the UK, for like ten thousand years, it was pretty much paradise. There were no real predators. There were maybe a hundred thousand people living in the entire you know, Great British landmass. Um, there were wolves, but not very many. I mean, this is according to all the research that I've done. So, I think, I think when you were a hunter gatherer and you were living in that way, you were much more in tune to your environment. You mm. were making decisions based on instinct. You weren't always looking for a rational explanation for things. You were living according to your wits. You didn't see a separation between yourself and your environment. Um, you weren't other than the land. You were just another component of it. Um, and I think Spielzeug fits into that mindset. And when you think that it's only since farming the last 5,000 years that we've lived in the way we currently do, so accepting 200,000 years as the time frame of the Homo sapiens as a species, people will argue it's bigger, more or less than that. But if you assume it's 200,000 years, you're basically saying for 5,000 years of that 200,000 years, what's two and a half percent of our existence as a species, we've lived in the way we currently do. Um, so I think there's a huge amount of wisdom in instinct and in the way we naturally react to things that we, f we no longer trust because we live within a rationalistic framework in the society certainly in the west so i think we're really closed off to a lot of our own in innate wisdom and i think spielzeug is kind of like a window into that it's kind of like a reminder it's a memory that you can you can be guided by something you can't explain yeah um, and not only is that okay it will give you the most meaningful experiences of your entire life <laughs> which is why i think a house is so interesting because this is the most expensive thing most of us will ever buy and yet you buy it on the basis of an instinct that you can't explain. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So it's kind of like, whoa, what's happening? So we, it, it's not like we can transcend the kind of rational framework in those moments. Um, and once you know the existence of that feeling, you start looking back, you read philosophy books or history books and you start to see it everywhere. You just don't have the kind of uh, linear thread of a narrative that explains it because of course it, with the West, modern western mind Spielzeug is hocus pocus rubbish that you can't empirically review and prove through peer-reviewed journals there's nothing wrong with that I want my doctors and brain surgeons to live in that way but there's no real way of proving it in inverted commas other than through our own individual experience and that's what you rely on because I imagine if I asked you name me three things in your life that Spielzeug it wouldn't take you very long to tell me what they were right no, not at all. Um, and, and, and that knocks on to me thinking about the explanations as to why they're important to me. Um, and, and you wouldn't be surprised at what I'd say. They'd be very similar to everybody else. But I'm not actually describing what it feels like to you. It's, it's, it's almost like it's a blend of a feel and a, and a sense it is a sense. I think it is a sense. And I think it's, well, I always see them as signposts. I always see them as it's telling me to go a certain way. Um, <clears throat> I mean, something happened to me very recently, which isn't Spielzeug in one sense, but it 
feels like it's it feels like it's like a Venn diagram. It feels like it's within the spirals of Venn diagram. And that is, and I think it's quite a good example because it shows if you're living in alignment with what you believe and care about, it starts to appear. So like my whole life, I've really wanted to have a dog, but I haven't been able to have a dog because my um, brother was allergic and it's just never been something that was possible. Um, I like very specific kind of dog. I really like whippets. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I live in Salisbury and I moved here with my wife about two years ago. And because we moved to this new house, she's got, every time she hears about somewhere interesting, she put, drops a pin. And then if on a Saturday morning, we're like, we want to go out into nature of some kind, she'll go, well, let's go here. Mm. So we did that one day, we went to this place. It's actually the National Trust property that was in the news recently, because they're, I think they're going to sell it to celebrities for parties. But anyway, mm. um, yeah, it's really annoying. Anyway, we were walking around it um, and we bumped into this couple with a whippet. Um, and my, my son, who's five, is terrified of dogs, but wasn't terrified of this one. This dog was called Lego, which is the name of his favorite toy. Um, and Lego was pregnant. And he had this insane reaction, like a Spielzeug reaction to this dog. Like he's terrified of dogs, but suddenly they're cuddling each other and he's feeding it. And it's just bizarre to watch. Anyway, um, we're getting one of her puppies in about a month. And... If you want to try and get a dog, it's really hard and it's, you have to know the right people. You have to make sure they're the right breeders. Do a ton of research. There's loads of unscrupulous people out there. Now, obviously, what happened was coincidence, right? That's coincidence. But it's a coincidence that occurred because we're living in alignment with our lives. I've always wanted to live where I live in the West because I was born in the New Forest. It sort of feels like it's where I'm supposed to be. But there are so many coincidences. Now, I've had loads of that in my life. I've had so many coincidences that, are, that will make the hairs on the back of your neck go up when you hear some of them because they're so ridiculous. And I think it's that part, it's that spectrum of Spielzeug. It's this kind of instinctive, there are, it's not fatalistic, but there are just, if, if you follow who you are and go where you're supposed to go, this stuff starts to happen to you. Mm. Um, and that reinforces your confidence to be who you are. Yeah, which again makes you more the kind of person that is more positive, maybe or optimistic than than pessimistic, and you'll make more of situations as they develop, and you're more robust when difficult things happen because you're feeling in alignment with who you are. You're not trying to stuff yourself into some a shape the shape of something that doesn't work for you. Yeah. So so yeah, I, I mean, as I say, this is all scientist or a doctor will say this is all bollocks, but it feels really real, and my life has proven to me that it's a real thing. It's a real phenomenon that you can follow um, and respect because it, yeah, it'll, it'll give you everything you want. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, this, this speaks to me because of the, what you may have seen, I, I work with people with, uh, who's struggling with, with pain and, and of course that's subjective. You can't see yeah. it. Mm -hmm. um you can sure as hell feel it yeah um but there's nothing that you can see there's no gauge there's you know people are trying to say oh there's a brain pattern but that you know that doesn't tell you anything about that that experience no. at all and of course science wants wants measurements as you said it wants yeah. it wants data it wants black and white and 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 there's there's such a gap between the lived experience of what it's like and then these these measures and this so this is exactly the same um, right and so that that was one of the reasons why this really spoke to me because 
to to really to, to really be with someone in the room what you're actually interested in is their lived experience so so this stuff mm-hmm. and 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 the, this is this is what we this is really what we're working with but but when you know you've got third parties or whatever saying well what are, what are they working towards and you're saying, well, they want a better life. They want to feel better. They, they want to feel these things. Um, they want to feel joy and pleasure. And, 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 and they're like, yeah, but, but where's the goal? Where's the numbers on that? How are you? <laughs> and you're like, well, there aren't any. Well, well, we're, 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 how, can we, how can we work with that then? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So we have to kind of artificially create things. Oh, well, you know, they'll be able to walk a mile. Great. Yeah, okay, yeah. we'll take that. We'll take that. But what we're really interested in is, is that walking a mile, does that make that person feel feel good? Does that make their life better in for them? That, that's yeah. the bit that really, really matters. Um and so if you know this 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 feeling, this this sense that you've that you've identified, um I just think is, as you said, it's something that's that's always been there, and now and now we've got a name for it. Great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's. I mean, there's there. Are, I've got other friends who I've spoken to about it who are quite dismissive of it, and they they tell me I haven't read it. Or I've tried. I've read his Wikipedia page, but one of my friends said I had to read Pierre Bordeaux because it's basically just middle class taste, um, which I think. I don't agree with that, but I think there's something in it because it makes that makes me feel annoyed, which makes me think there'll be some truth to it. Because you don't get angry about something. I mean, if there isn't truth to it, I I, yeah. I, I come to think. Um, so I think there's there's an aspect of that to it. But I think I think if it's if it's your kind of individual interpretation of how you live, I mean, I, I now see it as a compass. That's how I see it. It's it's a kind of it's a Spielzeug is like a directional device. It's kind of like, for example, I'm moving up. We used to live in London. We now live near the New Forest, and being in nature, like it just lifts everything in my life. Mm. I mean, it's there are there are medi- like walking woods, writing. There are certain things that bring me into a flow state, and I see again Spielzeug is in that in that world of flow where you it's kind of timeless. That it's 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 not about it's not about the result like your point about having to have an artificial ambition or something mm. like flow states aren't about the result of the my first experience with a flow state was skateboarding where i would spend hours and hours now trying to do a trick and it drove me insane but you just developed enough you got better enough it was hard enough that you could see your improvement but it wasn't easy to do yeah. And I would literally spend three or four hours skateboarding and have no concept of time. Um, and at the time, I didn't realize that I'd stumbled on one of the most magical experiences of my life because I've subsequently been trying to find other flow states. It was only in therapy that I realized that was the first one I'd had. Um, and we used to get chased by the fucking police for being yeah. in a flow state, which is like tells you something about the fucked up reality of um, <laughs> what life was like when I was a teenager. Uh, 30 years ago um so i think i think i don't think it matters how people dismiss it if it's enriching you um 
and it can be physical objects like i have a martin and co acoustic guitar and my god and i've for ages i was obsessed with spitfires i think a spitfire i mean planes have spielzeuge mm. there's something magical i mean i say that someone that was didn't fly for 20 years because of a flying phobia but there's something i mean i came i came across spiels like writing a book about machines and why men were obsessed with machines and it was that thing that their spiel dog isn't in the plans and it's not in the materials of the machine that the plans are there to build but it's something that happens in the act of building it that you can you can get it in trains you can get it in cars um and of course i I spotted it at the do lectures in a wooden surfboard and I then went and made my own wooden surfboard and wrote a book about that because for me Spielzeug was about became about making it was about that flow state of, of it was a kind of creative act around and also also to talk to your point about pain for me it's become something that I use to challenge the boundaries my own mental uh, William Blake called the mind forged manacles the the kind of artificial boundaries I place upon myself. So if I say I'm not the kind of person that can do that, then I immediately want to, I immediately now in my life go and try and do that ah, because I don't want to accept, rule. not in a testosterone way, but I won't accept that limitation because I don't know where it came from. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't remember why I think that about myself and it's almost certainly not true or mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be true. Um, so now I use feels like in that sense, because I'm like, I want, I don't want to accept those limitations that I've placed upon myself because all the limitations you have in your mind, you are putting them there yourself, even if it's because of perfectly reasonable, even if it's a perfectly reasonable response to some difficult things that have happened to you, you are nonetheless imposing those limitations on yourself. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying pain is a, someone's imposing the limitation of pain on themselves for one, for yeah, one no, moment, no, but I just mean there's more going on up in your mind that's involved in, the assessment of what's happening to you than we maybe realize. Yeah, I, you know, we're conditioned, aren't we, to think certain things. And going back to your point about when someone, you know, says something about this, the concept, and you feel anger or frustration with it, I mean, that's just two belief systems hitting each other. Um, okay. Yeah, that's fair. Point. As, you know, that, that's, and, but what you're talking about there is you, you've got your own self awareness to know that that's what's happening when you feel when you when you kind of get that inner dialogue that says oh you you won't be able to do that you know that that's that's just a thought that, that somewhere along yes. the line has been imposed on you you've taken that on board and you don't need to accept that as the truth you you will prove to yourself that it's not the yeah. truth by actually going and making that thing yeah that's absolutely right and that's um that's, I think it's probably the most important driver of my life now, weirdly. It's that not accepting it, not, not being that person that I've come to accept that I am. Um, and I think, and I've done lots of things that I never thought I would do, like run a business for is one of them. I mean, Christ, I never thought I would do that. And I didn't think I was able to do that. Um, <laughs> but I have, I've been doing it for 10 years, so I'm doing something right. Um, but that's a change of, that's me changing the definition I have of myself. Um, and I do think that, like, I do think that your life is the territory upon which you evolve. And I remember um, I was reading something a while ago about um, 
I know it wasn't. I was watching an Eckhart Tolle video. I watch Eckhart Tolle videos on YouTube when I'm feeling strained because yeah. um, I love his take on things. And he was doing some kind of talk and, and uh, a mother was talking about how much she struggles to be aware when she's got two kids that are completely driving her nuts <laughs> and um, how she's never going to, she doesn't have time to meditate and she doesn't have time to do all these things that she knows is going to make her a better person because she's got these children that are driving her crazy and she wants to be a mother. And, and he just starts laughing and going, well, you're already lucky. She's like, how can I, how is what I've just described lucky? It's like, well, you've been given the task of applying what I'm saying to you in a fraught situation with looking after two children on your own. So you, that is the territory. I'm totally, this isn't what he says, but my interpretation of it is that's the territory upon which you get to do this work. There's no point having this work that you can only apply if you're sat on your own in the in the, the lotus position under a tree in the new forest. Like you've got to be able to do it in a traffic jam. Yeah. Like that's when you need it. Um, and I'm a firm believer in that now. That so I so obviously work has been very difficult. Divorce is very difficult. Lots of things in my life have been very difficult, but every time something like that happens, my first thought is, okay, how am I going to deploy what I've learned to deal with this? And how am I going to not go insane? How am I going to... And, and, and so you, I think those problems can become very helpful yeah. if you can change your mindset and go, okay, how do I apply it to this? Because um, that's, that's when you need it. And actually, that's when it works, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that is that that is exactly when you need it, isn't it? Um, you, you know, you might have the opportunity to to rehearse and practice these things sometimes when it's quiet and peaceful, um, and great if you can, if you can carve out that time, because then obviously you'll be better at it when you when you need it. But it all kind of speaks of you know philosophies of Buddhism and Stoicism, doesn't it? These these kinds of very practical um, approaches and tools that you can that you as you said deploy. When, yeah. when you need them. Um, and yeah, then that's, that's crucial that to me. Something. Sorry, say that again? You feel that you've done something. You feel that yeah. you, you've turned that, that obstacle, that problem into learning something. Yeah. There's, um, yeah, that's absolutely right. I learned um, a couple of years ago, just for lockdown, actually, I did a thing called the Hoffman Process. Which I don't oh, know if you've yeah. heard of that. I've heard of it. I don't know much about it. Yeah, it's basically, it's... Um, I can't tell you what you do because you start, you have to sign an NDA, which mm. is partly because that's because if everybody knew what happened, it wouldn't be as effective. It's also a brilliant marketing exercise, obviously. Yeah. Um, but basically it's like someone described it to me as like 10 years therapy in a week. Um, but one of, one of the things I learned from doing that was that you, um, it's just, it's that monitoring of your thought process just got to be really vigilant with your own thought process and what you were talking about the awareness you're not the thing that you're feeling you're the one watching yourself experience the feeling and just having that little bit of space and being aware that you're not the same thing allows you to slightly push it away and interrogate it rather than react to it um and one of the ways i do that is i've i've learned i have certain things if i do i have a great day if i go running before work when in the morning or if i write for an hour or if i do a kind of meditation thing i will have a better day than if i don't do those things yeah um now i don't always do those things but i'm con- completely conscious of the fact that they help and so when i do get those mornings and i'm like oh shit 
I go, well, there's which of the three things am I going to do? And if I do all three, I'm going to have an amazing day. So if I have a day that I know is particularly difficult, I will make myself do all three because what it doesn't make your day any less difficult, but you become bulletproof in facing those difficulties. Yeah. So you just can handle it. Um, and when you've worked that out, what's right for you, for everybody will be different. When you've worked out what those things are, it changes your life because mm. suddenly you're in control, even of the times when you're not in control and it helps you cope with not being in control. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, but you know, fucking hell, I'm 46, man. I wish I'd known this when I was 20. But it takes a long time to find these tools. You, you I mean, I, I often think the same thing. I'm a little bit older and, and have probably over the last 10 years have discovered lots of stuff. And actually a lot of stuff that I was have been exposed to before, fortunately, from people and had dabbled with but had not really engaged with. And, and maybe at that age, you're just not ready or you think it's a load of old rubbish or whatever. You know, you, you think you know better when you're younger, I think. It's, yeah, I mean, it's, I'm so conscious that this makes me sound like a really annoying old man, but you're absolutely right. Like, there's just, although I think, I don't know what it is, because actually, coming to, having said that, when we moved recently, I went in the shed at the bottom of the garden because we were moving house. I had to finally deal with the messed up shed that had been there for <laughs> fucking years. And I found a notebook from when I was 15. And I basically read this stuff when I was 15. And it was, it was one of the most extraordinary and depressing experiences of my life because all the wisdom I thought I'd spent 46 years collating was in this fucking book. <laughs> I knew it when I was 15. I just didn't believe in myself. Yeah. I was, I just questioned my sanity. I had really bad mental health problems as a teenager in, in my early twenties. Like I had zero confidence. So even though a lot of the stuff was second nature and the stuff that I do now, I think I would have been equipped to do it then. I didn't trust myself. Then. I trusted everyone but me. Mm. So I would just follow what everybody else did. Like I, I gave up drinking when I was like 40, 41 or 42, but I gave it up because I suddenly realized that for 26 years, I'd been ingesting alcohol, which is a depressant at least two or three times a week. And I realized I had no idea what it was like to be the adult version of myself without regularly ingesting a depressant. So I gave up drinking for three months and I felt fucking amazing. And now I don't drink anymore. Not out of some, you know, like hair shirt puritanism. It's like, makes me feel terrible yeah and i feel amazing when i don't do it but i would never have had the confidence at 20 to say to my mates in the pub when they're getting tequila shots i don't want one i'm not drinking thanks yeah. so i think i don't think it's it is age but i think it's because of your lack of trust in your own judgment and you don't even know what is your own judgment you don't even know what you think often yeah. because you don't have the confidence to have to see it in that way um but there's but of course by the time you get to our age like i went to a stag do a few years ago and a guy brought around tequila shots and i was like you're fucking kidding me i'm 40 i don't have to do that shit anymore <laughs> everyone around me is like yeah i don't want either mate no fuck off <laughs> and it's like oh eureka i don't have to do that i don't have to be that version that was never even me in the first place it's a kind of and there's no doubt you get that when you hit once you go over 40 something i think 
I think it's you give up on your body and your dreams of being a sports star and all those things have gone. You're like, I'm never going to be, I'm never going to have a six pack. Thank fuck. I can stop worrying about that. I was never likely to have one, but at least I can just accept that physically, physically it's impossible now. Something happens to you and you just become a little bit more like, this is me. This is who I am. And I'm going to, I'm going to be not overly proud of it, but I'm not going to be ashamed of that anymore. Yeah. But isn't that such a massive thing? You know, it's it's it seems to be, if not the root of so much suffering, is the fact that our society says that you're, you know, you're not good enough unless, or yeah. you don't fit in unless you follow our rules. Yeah. That's school, classic example. Totally right. I mean, I have, I mean, still to this day, I have a chip on my shoulder that I didn't go to university. Like I, I dropped out of university twice. I mean, the fact that I'm even bringing it up tells you how fucking present that trauma is. Because when I was a kid, if you didn't do that, you were a failure. Mm. Um, yeah, not being good enough. I mean, I don't think I've ever met anybody that doesn't have that deeply rooted in there, in there somewhere. Um, and if you can find a way of showing yourself that that's not true, the liberation is insane. I mean, one of the things about the Hoffman process, which I think I can say, is that no one's allowed to talk about, there's like, I think there's like 20 of you who do it at the same time. And you're not allowed to talk about anything about who you are, or what you do. You don't, you don't talk about that at all. Mm. And it's extraordinary because people, it's like meeting, it's like making friends. When the, the, only, the closest thing I've come to it is um, my five-year-old starting school. He makes friends with people based on how they turn up in the world. He has absolutely no interest or care or has no idea what any of them do, what any of their parents do, where they live. He has no sense of hierarchy. He's just, are you fun? Great. Let's do it. Let's do this. Yeah. Like, and the hover rose is a bit like that. It takes you back to that state where you're not about all the other shit. Um, and you make friends there for, with people who have no idea anything about you. Yeah. So they like you because of who you are. And you realize that's such a superpower afterwards. Cause you're like, but I thought I had to do all this shit and be this shit. I had to be a CEO and a writer and I had, to, I had to have all these badges to be meaningful to the world. Um, and of course, if you're lucky enough to have children, you'll know that like my kids don't give a fuck about any of the things I do. They're like, ugh, daddy's dragging us into another bookshop. See if you can find his book that's yeah. never in the <laughs> shop. You know what I mean? Like they have zero, they don't, I'm not impressed by any of that. Yeah. Um, but you're still the most important people to them in the world. But we don't take too many of us, I think, just don't we don't see it that way, right? We mm. we just see what we think we don't have or or what we're not. Yeah, yeah. And that's again, that's all the the conditioning that we've that's been bestowed upon us, you know, and recorded and then somehow internalized and then churns out as a bunch of thoughts that you think are the truth. Is there's a there's a I don't know if you've seen the, the Darren Brown um ted talk where he no it's it's a really interesting one actually because he talks about this and he talks about these stories and he, he uses it as the basis for helping explain his work and what he does it's a good okay one. i won't i won't say any more because uh go and check it out you'll you'll yeah, immediately well. get what what we um he just captures this this really really well 
Um, to the point where actually I often recommend it to people I work with and say, look, you know, because I talk to them about this and the inner dialogue and, and, you know, what are you telling yourself day in, day out? Um, Because that becomes your, your truth, your, your reality. But is it the truth? Are there other possibilities here? Is this really you? Um, I, so I had a really interesting experience of that with, I didn't fly for 20 years because I had a phobia. And I went and did cognitive behavioral therapy with this amazing guy called Steve, um, who I still speak to occasionally when things, stuff is, life is difficult. And he made, he, he basically explained it to me that um, exactly what you're just saying, but it a really, a, the thing that really helped me was he, he made me realize that if you have the thought, if I get in a plane, I'm going to die, your brain is cut off from the world. It relies entirely on the inputs that it gets from your senses. So for, in my case, I spent 20 years telling myself that if I got in an airplane, I would die. Mm. So he said, so for you to get in an airplane, it's like someone telling you to put your hand in a fire. But why are you going to do that? Because fire is hot. Well, if you go on a plane, you die. He said, but not only have you told yourself that for 20 years, your brain has structured itself to facilitate that thought process. So for you, getting in a plane is like putting your hand in a fire. Your brain doesn't have to think about it anymore. It just knows it's a stupid thing to do. So, it, and it won't let you do it. And if you try and do it, it will do everything in its power, panic attacks, you know, sleepless nights, constant worrying to save your life by not letting you get in a plane. Um, and when I realized that, that my fear, to, to go against my fear, I was going up against the physical structure of my brain because of neuroplasticity. Um, it made me realize how I had to deal with it, which was to change the neuroplasticity of my brain by doing things that gave me new evidence uh, that flying was safe. But of course it gave me like an intellectual argument for making myself get on a plane. And I've subsequently flown a lot. And now my brain has remodeled itself to no longer think that if I get in a plane, I'm gonna die. It's now, I used to be scared, but I'm not anymore. Mm. so now my brain isn't structured to tell me something that's preventing my me living my life but but for 20 years i was governed by that structure that i created yeah so if you tell you if you tell yourself you're not worth loving for 25 years guess what happens you know if you tell us so you you know you literally become the, the story you tell yourself you are yeah and when i realized that it, that it sort of tied into this whole thing about challenge the limitations you're placing on yourself because you're not just it's not an abstract thing. You know, you're, you're changing your brain structure to believe those things, um, which is why they're so debilitating, but obviously also why you can change them. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you're pretty much describing, you know, the very contemporary understanding of, of really how, how the brain works, how the brain is predictive um and we'll use past experience to try and make sense of what's happening now you know, right. the data that's that's coming in right now and okay there might be a mismatch between those two so some kind of error and we try right. and the error we we try and update the prediction so what you've done there is you've created you've got some new thoughts some new ideas obviously that's that's sort of top down i suppose you could you could call it that but but those thoughts and ideas are biology as well you know there's something going on inside us to have yes. those thoughts yeah. and, and ideas and and then you exactly as you said you've created some new evidence 
by yeah. doing something. And it might have been pretty damn uncomfortable to start with. It was really hard. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was. You know, because those are very real, normal biological responses to the, mm. to the even the possibility that you might die in that aeroplane. Yeah. And you've got to be able to cope with cope with that, which you learn how to you learn to deal mm. with those bumps in the road and then on. And then you get the reward. I.e., Now you've been to places you wouldn't otherwise have been to. Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely right. And it's and, and it is hard because you obviously to, to change those experiences, you have to get on a plane and not die. <laughs> yeah. So you have to go and do the thing. But they also tell you the other things, which is you have to deal, engage with it intellectually. And then you also have to, they, Steve, you helped me find the source of the original fear, which of course had nothing to do with flying, but was all about not being good enough. So you have to kind of decipher the code of yourself. And I found that really interesting because I'm, I'm really, I think like a lot of people, I'm really interested in myself. Um, it's like not very, uh, it's, it's an egotistical thought position, but I think if you you are living your reality is the one that's going on between your ears and if you're not interested in yourself um you're less likely to make sense of life i think mm. um and i i love that idea the story of you you know we are we are the stories we've told ourselves so you're the protagonist but you're also the narrator so you can change it if you want um and there's so many people i've in my life have said oh you know, so-and-so will never change. And I, I totally used to believe that. And now I'm like, it makes me really angry whenever I hear that. I was like, no, how fucking dare you? Everyone, you know, that's absolute bullshit. Like, yeah. you can completely change. Um, it's not to say it isn't difficult, but that possibility is, you know, it's there for all of us. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel exactly the same way when I, when I hear that. I find it really hard to, to hear that as, as you do. And I mean, you, you make it obvious in the talk um, that, you know, one of the things you really want to do is, you know, is to understand the world and to understand the world, you've got to understand yourself. Are you, are you any closer kind of six years later, do you think? Oof. Well, I, I, I kind of found my meaning of life in the last two years um, by doing this research on hunter gatherers. It helped me. Um, before I did all that work, I just kind of, I couldn't really see the story of myself in the context of being a human. Like it was all about me as an individual. And I did history at school and I did the Romans and I did, you know, bits and bobs, but I didn't, I've never really had a kind of narrative of my species that, because I would go back to, you know, BC and then there was nothing in, in front of that. Um, and I now think, the date we use is the biggest story we're all telling ourselves is true that's not true that is restricting our development because i think if you accept that we've been around for 200,000 years and i was, talking, I was trying to explain it to my son the other day and i was saying the way i explained it to him was if an alien landed on earth and wanted to speak to a representative of the most successful human society in the history of our species where would they go I mean, he's, my son is very smart, so he didn't say the White House or Westminster. But the answer is to one of the few remaining hunter-gatherer societies in Indonesia somewhere. Mm. Because they represent our most successful time as a species in terms of longevity. Like, do you think our way of life is going to last 200,000 years? 
I mean, it looks like we're going to struggle to last another thousand years yeah. with the kind of climate apocalypse that's mm-hmm. around the corner. And yet for 200,000 years, they lived in a way that left literally no trace on the earth. Think about that for a minute. How could they be so successful? And yet there's no evidence that they were even here. And I think the collective, I think the wisdom, the meaning of life that we all think we're traveling towards through the application of technology is behind us. Um, I also read in my research that since farming, human brains have shrunk. So our brain capacity has diminished since from, so hunter-gatherers have bigger brains than we do. Now, I'm not an expert. Someone may email you and say, well, that's because of this reason. It's got nothing to do with that. But that feels like a very powerful thing to me. Um, So I've done loads of work and research about hunter-gatherer communities. And there's a couple of things I've discovered. One, but drone on about it for much longer. But one of the things is um, power over others was a completely taboo concept. Um, even children. There were no leaders, no big men, no kings. Um, and they did this amazing thing where they were so, I'm saying they, like, I'm, I mean, experts in hunter-gatherers will, I'm sure, have issues with what I'm saying, but my understanding of the reading that I've done is that they were so focused on not letting people get above themselves. They had all these strategies to prevent people getting big-headed. And the, my favourite one was the, was something called insulting the meat. So if you're a hunter-gatherer tribe, the biggest risk of someone getting big-headed is when they bring in a fucking buffalo or something yeah. and like feed everybody, right? They're like, you know, strutting around like superheroes. So hunter-gatherers had this, um, and I know this because Kalahari Bushman are examples of it. A lot of the a lot of the research comes from hunter-gatherer communities that existed until the 1960s, and some even to this day. But there seem to be common threads throughout the experiences. But they had this thing called insulting the meat, where the person that came back with the kill, they would just rip the piss out of them and go, "That looks. Did that die? That like just fall over and die at your feet." That is the most mangy looking deer I've ever seen. You expect us to eat that. That's disgusting. Like, and it's literally designed to stop them getting above themselves. Yeah. And you look at our world today. How much could we fucking deal with a bit of that right now? Yeah. Um, so imagine like that's how we were so successful. Now, of course, there are huge issues around medicine, although life expectancy. Do you know, do you know how long it took from, from the from the advent of farming for life expectancy to become the same as it was for a hunter-gatherer. No. What? It's like it's like 1920. Wow. Like their average age was like, obviously they had high infant mortality, but the average age was something like 33. And we didn't go above that in this country, in the UK, until like the 1910, 1920. So all of that time of farming, human life was more miserable than it had been as hunter-gatherers. So my meaning of life is is that I've realized is uh, the narrative of us as a species. If you want to, if you want wisdom and you want to live a better life, you've got to find out everything you can about how we live before the advent of farming. When you read up about how people were lived so successfully in communities, the whole kind of male female separation, I mean, it doesn't even stand up to common sense. Like the idea that women hunt, women foraged and men hunted. Well, that's bullshit. Like everybody needs to live, eat whatever they need to get the whole point was that children were taught to do everything yeah um and there are there are have been evidence of burials of female hunters um i think in south america and mexico so or even that even that gender perspective 
um, that we accept as human nature. And I think that's what it is. It's realizing human nature isn't what we've been told it is. Mm. Human nature predated farming for the majority of our time on Earth as a species. And everything I read just makes me feel like, obviously, we don't want to go back to that. But we need to get much closer to nature. We need to stop thinking of ourselves as different from the, from the Earth. Um, and all the things we're talking about, I feel, is that is sort of heading in that direction. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what the answers are, but I think I know where they are. And I think they're in the past. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, we'll have to catch up again um, <laughs> in five years' time or something. No, before then, actually, it'd be nice. But, but, um, but yeah, no, it's going to be fascinating to sort of watch. And, and when, yeah, your, your book is done to... Um, yeah, when I finished it, I'll talk... Oh, God, that's probably the best time because I'm... It's not, it's not all about that by any means, but that's informing it a lot. And I think, I think, I think the climate disaster that is on unfolding i think it's because we became separate from the, the world we live on mm-hmm. um i think that's when that cataclysm began um and we you know we all need to get closer i think to to the world we all need to live on yeah yeah, yeah no i agree it's it's not a commodity um, no exactly right it's part of us and we're part of it yeah um, but listen, it's been fascinating to chat. I know that you're going to have to go and do your duties now. Yeah, I'm going to get pick up the kids now. But it's been great. Really enjoyed um, it. Thank yeah, you for no, no. Along. Um, and um, it's always a good sign because uh, there was plenty of other things I wanted to ask. So it'd be great to have a, <laughs> a part two at some at some point. Um, but Very where where can people find you? Well, I don't really have any. I mean, Unbound, Unbound.com, and that's what I'm doing at the moment mainly. But my sort of Right, so I have a Medium blog, actually. Um, I'll send you a link for that because I've got some some of the stuff I've been writing recently is on there. Mm, um, yeah, no, very happy to do that. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, look, the, um, I'm going to post the, um, the do uh, lecture so people can hear about your story about how Unbound, um, you know, came about and such like. And that's a great story in, its, in itself. So that's, that's all there. So people can listen to both of these. Um, <laughs> But um, thanks again for for making time. Um, That's been brilliant. That's a real pleasure. Thanks a lot. Take care.